Well, if there's any children here, ages kindergarten to second grade, they can be dismissed to Children's Church if they wish, to the door over here by the piano. And while our children are departing, I would invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 37. It's on page 711. That should be easy to remember. Isaiah 37, verse 5 on page 711. As we pick up the story from last week, who's the guy who used to say, and now for the rest of the story, who's that guy, whoever he was? Paul Harvey, thank you very much. Today we pick up the rest of the story. If, if you weren't here last Sunday, we started a, a story, and today we're going to finish this Old Testament narrative. It's in Isaiah chapter 37. We're going to be looking at verses 5 and following in a few moments. You know, our worship director, Jennifer Bowl, uh, told me a story about something that happened several years ago. Uh, she and her husband, Chris, were working with a guy named Mike Schutz. He was the chaplain at Easton Nazarene College for many years. And, the, and the, together they directed the summer mission program, which basically involved sending out ENC students, college students, to do summer mission projects. Uh, some of them would go out and sing in churches and travel around. Others would go lead a youth camp. But, but they would send out all these teams to these different places, and Jennifer and her husband and Mike were in charge of organizing this event and organizing the teams and training them. But w- one of the persistent problems they had, as you can imagine, was uh, an attitude problem among the students. So much whining, so much griping and grousing and complaining. And it was a tough summer. I mean, you had to go sleep in churches and people's homes and you traveled around. I mean, it was not a cushy, nice kind of summer. It was ministry. You were serving and it was difficult. But it was just such this attitude problem. Everyone, you know, griping about their issues and their needs. So Mike Schutz got so frustrated that he came up with a slogan for the summer mission trip, which actually he used a couple summers in a row. And he put it on a t-shirt and he made everyone wear the t-shirt. Uh, Jennifer Bull gave me one of these t-shirts, just let me borrow it. And here's the slogan, I don't know if you can read it or not. It's not about me. And they had to wear this shirt. (laughs) It's not about me. Some of you need this shirt, okay? (laughs) I need this shirt. It's not about me. I mean, it's so uh, endemic to my sinful nature to think that it's about me. It's just the way I'm wired up as a sinful human being, or I should say maybe uh, miswired as a sinful human being, is that I think it's about me. My culture is constantly telling me it's about me. Jeremy, it's about your wants, your needs, your feelings, your issues, your rights, your privileges. And, And we kind of applaud people when they put the focus on themselves. People say things like, you know, I had to take some time for me. I've been giving to others, but it's fine to take some time to take care of me. When people say things like that, we go, oh, mm. you know, as if that's kind of enlightened or sophisticated or something. Uh, but it's not all about us. It's all about God. Life is about Him. Life is about knowing God, loving God, serving God, delighting in God, obeying God, worshiping God. You and I were created for Him. You know the Westminster Catechism. What's the first question? What is the chief end of man? That's pretty good. If you're Presbyterians, you'd say it better. But it's, uh, 
to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You know, that's our purpose here on planet Earth, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we were made. That's why every one of us exists. Even though we're very diverse people in different walks of life and background, we all have one meaning for our existence, which is ultimately to glorify God and enjoy Him. And of course, the ironic thing is that when you set your sights on God as the purpose of your life, you kind of get yourself thrown in. You end up finding happiness and fulfillment and purpose and all that. So, so it's, not, it's not as if I'm denying myself you know, for God. As I get God, I get myself as well. It's kind of a, a package deal is the way it works. But life is about God and it's about His glory. It's not about me. And sometimes God uses painful circumstances in our lives to remind us of that. Sometimes God brings us low. He strips us down. He humbles us and gets us emptied of ourselves through difficulty so that we finally lift up our heads and be like, okay, I'm focused on you again. And that's what happens in our story uh, that we've been studying. That, that's the, the dynamic that's taking place. If you look at Isaiah chapter 37, uh, we're, we're studying a, a situation that took place uh, in 701 B.C. Actually, uh, get your sermon notes out for a minute. Let me just recap what we studied last week. Some of you weren't here, and some of you were here, but you weren't here, if you know what I'm saying. So we, we just want to recap what happened. <laughs> uh, if you look on the front, you'll see a couple timelines, uh, and we've seen this timeline many times. If you look on the far right, you'll see a big, long arrow going up. It goes from Sennacherib up to Hezekiah, and then there's a little explosion thing at the top. That's the conflict that we've been studying. It took place in 701 B.C. when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, invaded Palestine, invaded Judah. He attacked Judah. He, he just wiped out all the cities and villages, and he besieged the capital city of Jerusalem with Hezekiah in the city. If you look on the next page, you'll see a map. And you'll see some arrows going down. Uh, this is a map of Sennacherib's invasion route. He went down the uh, coastal route through Palestine and sacked city after city, subjugated people after people, asserting himself. And if you remember last week, we, we said we know the way that he went because archaeologists have actually found Sennacherib's account of this same invasion. So we have the biblical account and then we have Sennacherib's version, which has been historically confirmed. And they're very much in agreement. I've read both of them, and you know, they pretty much say the same things, except for one major discrepancy between the two, which I'll tell you about later. So, uh, so here comes Sennacherib. He comes down, and you'll see at the bottom he comes to Lachish. He besieges Lachish. Lachish was a, a fortified stronghold that had been used as a defensive point many times uh, for the south western part of Judah. He comes down, he besieges Lachish, and then you'll notice that little dotted line going up to Jerusalem. If you remember the story from last week, while he's besieging Lachish, Sennacherib sends off one of his field commanders with a contingent of troops to go talk to Hezekiah in Jerusalem, who had rebelled against Assyria. And so the field commander comes up, and that's the story we read last week. The field commander comes, and he threatens, and he lays down ultimatums, and he blusters and he you know, wags his finger at Hezekiah and says, you better surrender or we're going to wipe you out. And You remember that story. And Hezekiah comes to this moment of faith. Will he trust God in the midst of this crisis or not? And you remember the story, he trusts God. Remember he did two things, he repented and he believed. That's what we studied last week. He repented of his 
faith in Egypt and other things, and he put his faith fully in God. He said, I'm going to trust God through this circumstance. And that's where we pick up the story today. As a result of that, of him trusting God, if you look at Isaiah chapter 37, verse 5, God responds to Hezekiah's faith with this message from Isaiah. It says, When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet said to them, Tell your master this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you've heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country and there I will have him cut down with the sword. So Isaiah says, don't worry. God's going to take care of this. You've put your faith in the right person. God is going to win this battle. Just have patience. You'll see what happens. And sure enough, verse 8, when the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. Now, if you look at your map again, keep your Bible open and take your map on the other hand, you'll see the dotted line going from Jerusalem over to Libna. And then you'll see a kind of a little arrow going up from Lachish to Libna. I tried to fit that arrow in, didn't do it for a good job. So, apparently Lachish had fallen, Sennacherib moves to Libna, and the field commander comes over and joins him. Now, you know, why did the field commander leave? What was it that called him back? Well, we find out in the next verse, if you look at verse uh, 9. It says, Now Sennacherib received a report, just like Isaiah said would happen. He received a report that Terhana, Terhaka, the Cushite king of Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. So, th- this is kind of what happened. Uh, Sennacherib's doing his thing in Judah. Then he gets this report that the Egyptians are coming up. Now, the Egyptians were probably the only real military threat to the Assyrians, even though the Assyrians were still bigger than the Egyptians. But that was probably the only threat. So probably what happened was he heard about the Egyptians coming, and so he calls his field commander back from Jerusalem. He summons his troops, and, and he gets ready to go fight this battle against the Egyptians. He needs all of his reserve troops. So that's what's taking place here. And I can imagine everybody was celebrating, everyone was rejoicing, everyone's, you know, oh, the field commander's gone, Jerusalem is saved. But just as they're starting to rejoice, Sennacherib sends a letter. See this in verse 9? When he heard it, when Sennacherib heard about the Egyptians, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word, and he sends a very threatening letter. And I, I don't know, I, I just kind of imagine this scene in my mind. Here's Hezekiah... He's celebrating with his officials. The field commander and the Assyrians are leaving. They're disappearing into the distance. Everybody's celebrating. They're, they're toasting. They have glasses of grape juice and they're celebrating. And, and Hezekiah is looking out over his people and there's the people down in the streets of Jerusalem dancing and hugging and laughing. And then there's this knock at the door, you know. Come in and, and mail. Oh, here's your mail. And so he you know, gets his mail and you know, credit card, zero APR. Uh, you know, coupons, uh, Land's End Royal Edition. And he's going through his, his junk mail. And then he comes to this letter to Hezekiah from the great king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And you could just see kind of the, the color going out of his face. And he shakingly opens it and pulls this letter out. And here in his land is this, hand is this blistering letter. Look at it in verse 10. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. 
And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Tel Asar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, or of Hena, or Iva? There's this threatening letter that comes. The purpose of the letter is kind of like, Hey, Hezekiah, don't worry. I'll be back, right? I'm coming back for you, Hezekiah. I haven't forgotten about you. I'm going to go take care of this thing with the Egyptians, and then I'm going to come back and finish with you. And I know where you live. Don't worry. It's like the bully in school who pushes you down in the hallway during school, and, and then he looks at you and he says, I'm going to see you after school. You know, is that threat. Like, don't worry. I'm going to find you. I'm going to get you. And so now here's Hezekiah uh, just confronted with the crisis. Again, he thought he was out of the woods, but now it's right back on him. And notice the content of the letter. The purpose of the letter was to threaten Hezekiah. The content of the letter is totally blasphemous. It's an attack against God. The letter is not ultimately attack against uh, Hezekiah or Jerusalem. It's ultimately against Hezekiah's God. The basic message of this letter is, Hezekiah, your God can't save you. That's the basic summary of this letter. He can't save you. So don't trust him. In fact, he even accuses God of lying. Look at verse 10. Do not let the God you depend on deceive you. He's calling God a liar. He says, look, I've conquered all these other nations and none of their gods could save them and your God is just going to get steamrolled by me like every other God. There's no one who can stand up against the great king of Assyria. And so it's really an attack against God. And now Hezekiah finds himself in another test of faith. He just came out of one, now he's right into another one. Isn't that how it works? So often when God puts us through times of testing, it's never just one thing. It's one thing, and then another thing, and another thing. I find that faith tests are often a process instead of an event. And and God will throw a series of deals, series of cards that come one after another. And He wants to see if we'll trust him over time not just once in one heroic moment but if we're going to trust him through a series of difficulties and a a, a series of ups and downs Uh, there's someone you can be praying for in our church Uh, actually it was in our church um, some of you know John and Christina Bowman Um, they they were uh, in our church for many years they just moved down to Virginia and he uh, was out of work for about a year just got a job down in Virginia and so, you know, he comes out of that one faith test. Well, they moved down there, and their, their, all their stuff was in a truck and a moving van, all their earthly possessions. They're waiting to move into this house. And, you know, they had these torrential rains down in Virginia. Well, the torrential rains dumped about 12 inches of water, which flooded the sewers and flooded the water systems. And that truck, with every single earthly possession they have, went under about 15 feet of water. And so... And I think I heard, I don't know if this is, I'd have to confirm this, but I, I think I just heard at the Labor Day picnic that they found out the insurance company isn't going to cover it. So they don't, they don't have anything <laughs> except what they took in their suitcases down there. And, uh, you know, if, if you can do anything to help them, if you know them, I'm sure they'd appreciate the encouragement. But, you know, you go from one thing to the next thing. And that's how it happens in life. And, wow, God is really testing them. I don't know why, but He's, defi- he's developing their faith. And uh, we need to pray for them. We need to stand beside them. You know, even though they left here, but they've really been part of our church. Uh, And that's how God brings us through tests in life, one after another. So here's Hezekiah, out of the frying pan, into the fire. And he has to trust God all over again. 
And that's what he does. Verse 14. Hezekiah, by God's grace, responds with faith. It says, verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. So he took this letter and he spreads it out before God. I love that picture. I just think it's a beautiful picture of taking all these things that you're concerned about and just spreading them out before God. Not that God you know, needs to read it or something. I mean, God knows what it says. But, but, but it's the symbolism of, of just surrendering it to God. Saying, God, I have no idea how I can possibly figure my way out of this situation. So I'm just going to spread it before you. I don't know if you've ever prayed like that. If you've ever been in such de- desperate circumstances that you've gotten on your face on the ground and just spread yourself out before the Lord. And sometimes you get to that place and you need to do that. Just get on the carpet, spread yourself out before God and just humble yourself before Him completely and say, God, I don't know what to do. But you know what to do. And so he comes to this place of total surrender, uh, total brokenness. And then he prays a prayer. And I'll tell you what, this is a prayer and a half. I mean, I love this prayer. I, I think this prayer is the high point of the whole narrative. I I think the whole thing climaxes at this prayer. This prayer is an amazing prayer. Not only because of what it says, but I think this prayer is so amazing because of what it doesn't say. This prayer lacks something very noticeable. And because it lacks this thing, it makes it a wonderful prayer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the prayer, and you can read along in your Bibles. And I want to see if you can pick up what's missing in this prayer that makes it such a great prayer. Okay, here's the prayer. Just just listen to this. This It's so awesome. O Lord Almighty, this is verse 16, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone are God, O Lord, our God. You notice what's missing in that prayer? There you go. Someone said it. It's all about God. I don't hear a lot of I, me, my, we, us, ours. The first person pronoun is uh, noticeably lacking. There's not repeated references to self. Which I think if I was praying this prayer, it probably wouldn't come out like this. (laughs) If I was praying this prayer, I'd be like, God, help me. What are you doing to me? Don't you love me? I've been faithful to you. How come you're not doing this for me? You know? You look here and it's just not there. And it's so, so amazing. I just find this prayer so different from the way I find myself praying when I'm in a you know, dead end. And this is just not how I pray. I, I, I pray about myself. But instead, this prayer is full of God. Look at verse 16. He starts off just by declaring who God is, focusing on God's greatness. He says, O Lord Almighty God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. He's just declaring truth about God. He's declaring theology about God. This is who God is. I've got to start with the first thing. Who's God? Alright, i got that in my mind. 
And then notice, the thing that he's really upset about in verse 17 is that God is being insulted. This is the thing that really is grating on Hezekiah. How could they say this about God? So verse 17, Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and listen. uh, And see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. What really bothers him is there's this king out there who's rubbing God's name in the dirt. And that just grinds him. He says, God, I can't believe this. He's concerned for the glory of God. And then in verses 18 and 19... He kind of talks through the letter. He's sort of praying through the letter. Sometimes we have to do this when we pray. Is, you know, thinking through reality from the divine perspective. You're facing a situation. You almost have to talk your way through the situation except from God's perspective. And that's what he's doing. Yeah, that's right, God. They have conquered other nations. They have wiped out other gods. But the reason is because those gods really aren't gods. But you're the living God. So he's getting his theology straight as he prays back to God. And then finally in verse 20 we get the one reference to himself. Verse 20. Just one time he says he referred to himself. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. That's it. The one time he prays for himself. And even then, he doesn't end the prayer there. He says, so that. So he sees the deliverance that he's asking for as a means to an end. Well, what's the end? Lord, deliver me so that... All kingdoms on earth may know that you alone are Lord, are God. He's ultimately concerned for the glory of God. He's zealous for God's fame. He wants God's renown to be presented to all the nations. And he's worried that if Jerusalem gets sacked, people are going to say, oh, there's no God in Israel. That's his biggest concern. I'm sure he's concerned for his own safety too. But God's glory is his uppermost concern. The great thing about this prayer is, <laughs> you know, it's not about me. And this prayer focuses me back on God and God's glory. It's all about God. And so, I need to learn to develop a, a taste for God's glory. I need to cultivate a, a refined palate for the glory of God. I need to learn to delight in God's glory. You know, it's like little kids. Little kids have really bland palates. You know, what do little kids like? They like macaroni and cheese, hot dogs, and cheese pizza. And they'll eat that all day. And it's just so bland. You know, and, and you're like, oh, come on. Try the steak. And they eat it and they're like, oh, oh you know. And, you know, try, try, try a little piece of brie cheese. It's really an interesting flavor. Oh, oh you know. And, and that's how we are. You know, we are so, I am, <laughs> we, I am so easily satisfied with bland things. You know, I, I want, you know, I've got a house, car, family, career, success, you know, money. You get those things in your life, and you're like, boy, this is great. But that's just macaroni and cheese and hot dogs. You've know, you got to try something really good. God. That's the mature taste. That's the glorious, wonderful thing, getting a taste for the glory of God. And, and it takes time to develop that taste. It's like a lot of things. It's an acquired taste. If you just go on autopilot, you will never get a taste for God's glory. It takes an, an effort to start learning about who God is and delighting in God and, and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and letting your palate be developed. And I tell you, when you do, it, it just changes the way you live. It, it, it helps in the battle against sin in our lives. You know, do you struggle against sin? Do you ever struggle against lust? How do you beat the battle against lust? I'll tell you how. You get something better in your head, which is God. And, and the lust becomes like, oh, that's boring. 
You know, sex? No, that's okay, but who cares about that? God is great. God is better than sex. Do you struggle with greed? Do you struggle with, oh, I want more of this, I need you know, new clothes, new house. You know, do you struggle with wanting possessions and you find you're spending more time looking through catalogs than through the Bible? You know, how do you defeat greed in your life? Well, you find something better, which is God. And you say, well, yeah, you know, that's the nice catalog from Land's End or J. Crew. I mean, that's interesting, but God, wow, you wouldn't believe what God's doing in my life. You wouldn't believe what God's doing in my church. You wouldn't believe what God's doing in Cambodia, what God is doing in China, what God is doing in Colombia. And once you start getting a, a taste for God's glory, man, the things of this world, they're, they're so bland. You wouldn't want to eat those anymore and you want to go home after church today and have a hot dog and macaroni and cheese. Like, who wants that stuff? And so it's as we develop a taste for God's glory that it changes the way we pray. And that's what I really want you to understand this. And as I'm talking about enjoying the glory of God, it, this is not some frumpy, boring thing. This is the joy of life, is to know who God is. And as you develop that taste, you'll live differently. You'll pray differently. You'll start, and I'll start to pray more like Hezekiah. I'll really want God's glory to be shown because I'll know that's when I'll get the most joy is when God's glory is magnified. So we pray one of two ways. Either we pray it's all about me kind of prayers or we pray it's all, kind of, it's all about God kind of prayers. When I'm praying like it's all about me, I treat God as if he's some kind of Santa Claus. You know, That prayer is like writing my list and I send it to the North Pole and then I wait for God to bring me what I wanted. You know, and if I don't get it, then I'm like the little toddler at Christmas who's surrounded by all these wonderful presents, but he didn't get the one thing he wanted. And so even though he has all these presents, he's like, ah, you know, I didn't get my Game Boy or whatever. And, and he's all mad and he's ungrateful. That's how I am when it's about me. Praying as if it's all about me treats God as if he's some kind of cosmic vending machine. And, and I put my prayer quarter in. I push my buttons. What do I want? I want this. I want that. I want this. I want that. And it doesn't come out. So what do you do with the vending machine when it doesn't come out? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and you know, God, I can't believe you're... You know, as if God is some kind of just machine that spits out whatever I push the buttons. And that's all about me kind of praying. When life gets tough, all about me kind of praying gets angry. Because it says, how could God do this to me? But when it's all about God... Life gets tough, and I don't get angry, I get curious. Because now I'm curious to see how God's going to glorify himself in this situation. I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting to find out. God, you've got to glorify yourself. This is a horrible thing I'm in, but you know, I believe you can get glory from this. Hmm, let's see how it happens. And, and it makes life just a different take on, on life. And you pray differently. You pray for God's glory. So how, you know, how do I pray? How do you pray? Do you pray for your mortgage? Do you pray for financial situations? Do you have financial crises in your life? Can you ask God for the financial resources you need? Yeah, absolutely. You know, can John and Christina Bowman ask God to provide for them furniture for their house and their home now that theirs has been wiped out? Yeah, and I hope, I'm sure they are. And you should. And, and, and we should pray for our financial needs. But the question is, am I equally or more concerned about the financing of global missions around the world? Does that bother me? Do I sit around and everyone go like, man, how are we going to raise money to get missionaries to western Afghanistan where there's several unreached tribes? How are we going to get someone there? Oh, do, do, am I concerned about that? Am I concerned about God's glory around the globe? Or does it just stop with me? Do I see myself as a means to an end or not? How do I pray for my children? I pray for my children. 
My wife and I pray for our children. We pray that God will bless them. God will take care of them. He'll keep them safe. That they'll grow up to be well-adjusted, stable people. You know what every parent prays. But the question is, to what end? Am I just praying this so that my children will grow up to be happy and stable? So what? I'll feel good about my parenting job? You know, why am I praying for blessings on my children? And of course I love them and I want them to be blessed. But, but what about praying for them so that God can use them in some way? You know, we do baby dedications in this church. You've seen it. We hold a little baby up here and we sing Jesus Loves Me. It's really cool. I love baby dedications. I love babies. But you know, are we really doing a dedication? That's what you've got to ask yourself. Is the parent truly dedicating their child to the Lord and saying, Lord, this baby's yours. And whatever you want to do with this child's life is up to you. And we're really giving this baby over into your hands. Or is the baby dedication some kind of like weird, religious, superstitious, you know, protection ritual or something? Like, well, I don't want nothing bad to happen to my kid. Better get him, you know, charmed in the church. I mean, is, is that what dedication is? Or am I really saying, God, take my child. Use him for your glory. I love this child, but he's yours. And God, it's all for your glory. When we get sick, we pray for our health. God, heal me, cure me. And we should pray for our health. That's, that's fine. But am I praying it just so that I can get better because I just don't like feeling bad? Or am I praying it because, God, I want you to use my life. And even if I am still ill, Lord, use my illness for your glory. I know of a pastor who's uh, told me this story. His wife was diagnosed with cancer. And one of the first things his wife said to him after they found out that she had cancer was she said, no matter what, I want God to be glorified through this circumstance in the way that we respond to the circumstance. And that's, that's a it's all about God kind of prayer. No matter what happens, whether God heals me quickly, doesn't heal me, heals me in a long time, whatever happens, I want God to be glorified by the way we go through this because it's all about God. It's all about Him. And the great thing about praying, it's all about God, prayers for His glory, the great thing is, He always answers that prayer. Other prayers He may answer, may not answer. You start praying for God's glory, you're going to see it answered all the time because God is zealous for His glory. God says, I am a jealous God. I will not share my glory with another. You know, God protects His glory like a, like a mama grizzly bear protecting her cubs. You can't touch it. God loves His glory. It's the most important thing there is in the universe. You should love it, and so does God. And so God protects it. And when you say, God be glorified, that God will bring all the resources of His divine power to pass to bring about the accomplishment of His glory in this world. Because it's all about God. And so Hezekiah prays, God, stand up for yourself. Stand up for your name. And God does. Look at chapter uh, 37. We'll just jump way ahead to the end of the story. Verses 36 and 37. So Sennacherib leaves. He's out camped in the field somewhere. Verses 36, 37. It says, Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. The good news is, it's not about you. Isn't that great? That's the most liberating news I've heard all day. It's not about me. It's so wonderful to hear that. Because now I'm free to live for God. And I find my joy in my life 
actually secured by focusing on Him instead of myself. It's a great irony, but it's a wonderful thing. So live for God's glory. Let us be a church that develops a continual taste for God's glory. Let us be concerned for the glory of God on the South Shore and all around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are great. You alone are God. Beside You there is no other. Satan constantly uh, bandies before us all kinds of trinkets and toys of this world. And Lord, they are so bland. They are so worthless. They are so lame compared to You and how good You are. Lord, help us to taste and see that You are good. Help us to taste and see that You are worth it. Lord, I, I just pray for myself. Get me out of this worldly way of thinking. You brought me so far, Lord, but I feel like I still have so far to go. Lord, help me to delight in Your glory. Help me to long for Your glory, to pray for Your glory. Lord, we pray for the South Shore of Boston where we don't see the name of Jesus exalted. And Lord, we feel like Hezekiah, it's an insult to You that the name of Jesus is not exalted around us. Jesus Christ, for Your glory, send revival so that Your name might be exalted on the South Shore. Lord, our church, you know, needs to build a, a building. We're crammed for space in all areas. Lord, this is a blessing from you, and, and you're the one who's given us the blessing in our church. So, Lord, we pray for your glory. Would you meet the facility needs of this church so that people would say there is a God, and he does answer prayer, and he does move. Our desire, Lord, is not to build up ourselves or become some big giant thing. Our desire, Lord, is for your name to be lifted up, Christ and for lots of people to worship you and to hear your word. And so, Lord, we pray for your glory. Accomplish your purposes for our church's needs. And, Lord, in our lives, may we live for your glory. I do pray for our brother and sister, John and Christina Bowman, who've had this horrible tragedy. And, God, I pray at this time that they would find the liberation of trusting completely in you. I thank you, God, that you love them so much that you're willing to put them through trials in order to perfect their faith. So, Lord, provide for their needs. And, Lord, if there's people in our church who can help them, I pray, Lord, stir our hearts. Help us to be the body of Christ to them so that, once again, you would receive the glory and people would be able to say, look at what God's doing through those Christians. And now, Lord, we love you. We pray, keep us focused on you. In Christ's name, amen. See, Very interesting. Sennacherib's account, as you probably have guessed, says nothing about 185,000 men being killed by the angel of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So you have the biblical account and you have the Assyrian account, and you've got to wonder which is, which is true. Uh, one thing to remember is that ancient kings were notorious for omitting defeats in their records. If you wanted to find out when a king got defeated, you've got to read the other king's records. Okay? That's how you find out who lost in battle, is that the other guy, you only brag about when you win. So first of all, Sennacherib wouldn't have written about it. Um, but still, it leaves the question, which is true? Why did Sennacherib leave the area? A couple of two interesting facts. The first is, it was Assyrian policy to destroy and to remove rebellious kings. Typically they were killed, sometimes they were impaled, sometimes they were skinned alive. I mean, the Assyrians were ruthless. If you rebelled against them, you were taken off the throne and you were killed. Isn't it interesting that Hezekiah stayed on the throne. This is totally contrary to Assyrian policy, to leave Hezekiah on the throne. Why does he stay on the throne? I don't know. Another interesting fact. 
After uh, Sennacherib left Palestine, he reigned for another 19 years before he was finally assassinated. 19 years. He waged other campaigns, he waged other battles, and in that 19-year period, he never set foot again in Palestine. Hmm. <laughs> Take your hymnals. Let's sing hymn number 562. 